Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. Hey, so there's a new thing that's out, and uh, I don't know if you guys have used it before. Um, usually comes in, in a container of sorts. Um, We're wearing the same shirt. We planned it. That is cute. It's on purpose. That's cute. Well, I was more. We coordinated this morning. I was Mark, more, what you wearing tonight? I was more referring to the the thing that all bald guys have plenty of, and that is sunscreen. I, I forgot that memo yesterday. Of. How long have you been bald, Adam? You well, that's a good now. question. So I've been bald since um, I was 25 years old. Q&A time. How long have you been bald, Adam? And uh, it was, you know, I think all bald guys have the moment of honesty, really, of just <laughs> looking in the mirror or rather looking at a picture and realizing that that's how you look and that needs to go. So mine was, I was bending down and somebody snapped a photo of the top here of Bozo the Clown. Uh, and asked I don't my know wife, what you're talking about. I got a full head of hair. This is yeah, just by choice. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So I asked my wife, is that really how I look? And she said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I went and got a razor and shaved my head that night. What about you? What, uh, you it know? was a, about a, a year and two months ago. A year and two months. My buddies actually gave me a set of clippers and they said, it needs to happen it's tonight. Go. It's got to happen. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. They're like, trust me, it needs to happen. So it happened. So you did it that, that night, night that with night. them. They're like, don't call Tara. Don't ask permission. Just do it. Shave your head. Good. She'll love it. Okay. What about you, She'll Mark? Um, I was 45 years old and it hurt to comb my head. So I quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Well, you guys know Chad Ragsdale. He was with us last week and certainly know Mark Christian. Uh, we are grateful to have these guys with us. I feel like you guys are like, you guys don't Should want we, to okay, actually yeah, show that you... Is that better? Okay, that's cool. All right. Um, but we're grateful to have a conversation that's honest and open and that starts with you guys. And so we, we've posted out, have had some questions rolling in over the afternoon, uh, but we want to give you guys an opportunity to bust out your phones uh, and there is a number that'll be on the screen, and you can text in any and all questions. Okay, so this is no holds bar, like everything is fair game type of thing. Um, we want to really dive into what it means to to doubt in a healthy way, and really be able to answer questions that you guys are wrestling with. Um, as Kalisa mentioned, we've gotten to this point where. We are looking at the life of the disciples, and right now we're looking at the life of Thomas. And and basically what we've done is we've taken Matthew's story, James and John's story, Thomas's story, um, these everyday normal guys, um, these dudes that are just like me and you, all their faults, all their warts, everything, and we've said, hey, these are not fictional characters, not superheroes, but real life people that struggle and they sit in that struggle they realize who they are in that struggle in the midst of being with Jesus and they know that they need something and that is Christ and then Christ redeems their story Um, we all have a story to share 
Uh, and within our story, the necessary part of that is struggle. Um, but what the beauty of, of Jesus is that there is redemption on the other side. And so with that, uh, specifically, is Thomas, his story. And so what we want to do is, is Chad, if you would, just kind of recap last week. And then we'll, you guys can continue to text in questions. And we're going to just get to as many questions as we can tonight and have some conversation uh, even within our tables as well. So, Chad, yeah, the, the big idea last week was pretty simple. It's, it's just this. If you're going to be a person of faith, if you're going to be a person that's following God and following Jesus, um, you should prepare yourself for seasons of struggle, for seasons of doubt, confusion. Um, and, and one of the things I said last week is uh, I get a lot more nervous about the student who tell, comes to me and says, I've never had any doubts. I've never had any struggle. Like I get a lot more concerned about that student than I do the student that comes to me and says, man, I'm just confused. I just don't get it. I have these doubts. Or maybe I'm frustrated or even angry with God. Like because what we learn in life is just a truism of life. Um, overcoming struggle produces strength. If there's never a struggle... If there's never that, that moment where you have to be resilient, where you have to persevere, where you have to find some resolution to those issues, what you're going to have is really a very fragile faith, a faith that is at risk. So one of the things I want you to know is um, to have some doubt, to have some questions, to, to have some frustrations even, this is a normal thing. It's a normal thing for, for all of us. Um, uh, don't, don't be deceived. Just because you, know, you have adults in your life that might be leading you and you look up to them or whatever, um, we all have overcome and are overcoming certain struggles in our own lives. Um, and the three things, I gave you three little things to keep in mind last week about um, dealing with your doubts. And I think they're going to be up on the screen. Uh, the first thing that I said was um, identify the source of your doubt. So when you're having struggles, concerns, questions, doubts, um, be brutally honest with yourself. Where are these doubts coming from? Are they just purely intellectual? Most of the time they're not. Um, a lot of times there's emotional hurt, an, an emotional needs or struggles, or maybe it's a spiritual issue. You just don't want to submit to God. And so because you don't want to submit, all of a sudden now you have doubts. All of a sudden now you're wondering if any of it's real. Where does the doubt come from? You can only address doubt if you could diagnose where it's coming from. Number two, honestly seek out answers. Don't use your doubts as a smokescreen for rebellion, which I've seen over and over and over again, particularly in young people, because there's things about God I don't understand. I'm just going to cross my arms, pout, and run away from them. Um, don't use your doubts as a justification for rebellion. Instead, honestly seek out those answers. Be intellectually honest enough to seek out those answers whether it's from peers, but probably better than that, mentors in your life, teachers, pastors, parents, grandparents. Seek out those answers. Read a good book. Um, and then number three, uh, the third thing that I said, if you could put it up, is it up on the screen? Oh, yeah. Worship and serve was the third thing that I said. Um, when you're struggling with doubts, put your faith into action. An apathetic, motionless faith is always going to be more susceptible to disease, okay? And so when you put it into action, when you're worshiping, when you're serving, when you're reading scripture and praying, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when you don't want to, um, that is a great way to 
deal with and address some of the doubts and confusions that you have. The very worst thing that you could do is take a step back and decide, I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to do any of these things. Um, That's a great way to, again, have a diseased faith that eventually uh, becomes uh, very, very unhealthy. Absolutely. Uh, Last week, we heard from Chad and his personal story on doubt. Mark, do you have a particular moment in your life or a season where doubt crept in that you had to wrestle with it head on? Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll be honest with you. There's from 16 to 18, from uh, 30 to 32, were two pockets in my life where I knew there was a God, but I didn't feel any closer to him than I did to that chair personally, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I was in ministry for one of those pieces. But you just you plow the ground in front of you, and you, you hold on to the hope that that thing you had with him once returns. And I think there are seasons where God stays distant to test. I've been married for 30 years this summer. And my wife and I have had probably five different marriages in that 30 years. If I quit every time it didn't feel like it did the first two years of marriage, we'd have quit in year three and mm-hmm. been done. So it was, never, it was never that there was a God, and it was never that... God cared about the world and Jesus was real. It was always, where is he in this reality I'm in? And uh, I love what you say. Being intellectually honest, uh, if you read the Psalms, you're going to find out the psalmists tell God they're mad all the time. And God doesn't stop being God and he doesn't love many any less. When we become fake with God, he seems to become fake in our reality. So the, the short shrift is I didn't have the crisis that Chad went through. Mm-hmm. I just had those periods where it didn't feel like anything. Mm-hmm. And what I found was what got me through it was, was worshiping and honoring God in spite of what I felt. Yep. And that wasn't fake. It was more real in those moments. My worship's never been more real than when I doubted. Absolutely. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. There's some questions around prayer and feeling that God is, there, is not there. There's some disconnect. Um, if I've been praying to God for a long time, why isn't he answering my prayers? Those types of questions are coming in. Uh, comments or suggestions on that? Why doesn't he answer? Because he's God. Uh, And that's not a snarky answer. Uh, Do you believe in your core that God has your best interest in mind? Uh, We we got a little guy at home. He's not little anymore. He's 12. But when he was little, he always wanted a trampoline. There's a reason he never got a trampoline. It wasn't, I always told him it wasn't because I didn't want to move it every time I cut the grass. That was convenient. The reason I didn't want it to is I didn't want him to get hurt. It wasn't something he needed. It was a a whimsical passion he had in the moment. I think sometimes God chooses to say no because that's what we need. If if God's a jukebox, that's an old reference, isn't it? Sorry about that. If God's an iPod, iPod that you want to pick your favorite song by spinning those buttons and pressing them down hoping your song comes up, you don't understand God at all. Uh, just as your parents have told you no, and you realize as you get older that their no was wise, um, I think we're, when we pose questions like this, they're great questions, but they're reversed in their logic. Uh, why would God say yes? Start, if you start from that premise, why would the God of the universe who created everything with a mere thought and provided all of this for us, and we've rejected him, rebelled against him and ruined what he gave us. Why would he ever say yes? When you analyze it that way, I think you start in the right posture. 
And then you can understand sometimes why he answers no and doesn't answer at all. I, I want to say just two things um, uh, quickly on this. Uh, the first thing, it's, it's a good question. It's a very good question. And there's not a Christian anywhere that hasn't had that exact struggle. I promise you that. Um, but you also have to recognize we make certain assumptions in prayer. One, one of the assumptions that we make in prayer is that it's all a one-way street. It's God sitting there listening to me. And so we bring that assumption to prayer that it's sort of like going and sitting on Santa's lap. God's just going to sit there, listen to our prayers, and then respond in kind. And that's not necessarily a biblical concept of prayer. Prayer is communication with God. Prayer is contemplation. Prayer is meditation. Prayer is sometimes often, Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. Uh, one way that that's translated in a more contemporary version is actually shut up. Just be quiet. Contemplate God. And, so, and, and I know that's not an answer that we like because we like being loud. We like speaking our mind. We want to be heard. We want what we want and we want it now. But actually scripture says, calm down. Be still. Contemplate a God who's there, a God who loves you, and a God who is mysterious at times. The second thing that I want to say is I want to talk to very, very quickly um, one of the most godly women I ever knew in my wa- life, uh, her name is Manny Jekyll. She taught the same fourth grade Sunday school class, I'm not exaggerating, for 67 years uh, in a row, without a break. And Manny, for the bulk of her life, um, was uh, single. And she had one prayer that she prayed from the time that she was 16 years old. She prayed consistently, God, I want a husband. God, I want a family. Prayed that consistently her entire life. She got married at the age of 81. Wow. And throughout that entire period, whereas I would have gotten angry at God, I would have gotten frustrated. God, I want one thing. I want to get married. I want to have a family. Is that too much to ask? I want one thing. But Mamie, I love her so much. She's so faithful. She's so patient. And she told me, she's like, God had other plans. My children were the fourth graders that I taught. Taught three generations of fourth graders in her Sunday school class. Three generations. Um, in that one Sunday school class. And it taught me a valuable lesson as a young punk. It's like, no, that's what prayer sometimes is. Prayer is patiently waiting for the Lord. Yeah. There's a lot more questions that are coming in around prayer, and one of them is around the feeling. Uh, should I feel a certain way? What if I don't feel a certain way? Is there any sort of, you know, I think what they're getting at is more around the peace you know, and so what if I don't feel that? Am I doing it wrong? Those types of things. What would you, what would you say around, I know we can kind of disconnect yeah, from logic um, and look at feeling. I want to caution you about grounding your experience with God too much on a particular feeling. Um, and the way I always illustrate this, because this issue comes up a lot, the way that I always illustrate this is with my own kids, and I know this will resonate with Mark too. Um, on the day that my son was born, 12 years ago, um, from that moment, he's my son. Nothing's going to change that. And, for, and because of that relationship, I necessarily love him. He is my son no matter what. Right? No matter what, he's my son and I love him. So my love for my son is born out of my relationship with him. Now, every parent has an emotional experience of parenting too. So as a parent, you're like a roller coaster. You're all over the place. So sometimes your emotions are way up here. I went to a ball. I went to a Cubs Cardinals game with my son last night. Who won? And the Cubs won, as a matter of fact. Mark, thanks for asking. Um, 
And that was one of those moments, like one of those moments where it's easy to be a great dad, okay? And it's easy to feel those warm feelings of affection, right? But then there's other moments that are way down here where it's not easy and the feelings aren't the same. And then there's a whole lot of moments that are just like in between somewhere. But listen, my relationship with my son isn't dictated by how I'm feeling at that particular moment. My relationship with my son is born out of that father-son relationship. And that's, what, that's the way I want you to see God. There will be moments where you're way up here. And you're experiencing peace, you're experiencing joy, you're, you're experiencing excitement. There's also going to be moments where you're way down here, and that's okay. And there's going to be a whole lot of moments in between. But I want you to know is your relationship with God is born out of something more than just your emotion. It's born out of the fact that God sent Jesus to die for you. And nothing is going to change that. No emotion is going to change that. That's good. Um, There's a lot of questions around just practical living out your faith. Uh, One is how or why should I follow Jesus when everyone around me says that they're a Jesus follower yet looks exactly opposite of what Jesus would do. What would you say to students that, I mean, obviously, we, we all can think of, on make a list of people that say they're Christian, uh, but don't live it out. And in fact, we could, we think, moralistically, we could live a life better than what they're living without God. Um, yet, there's this disconnect, Right? So what, what were some things that you would suggest or, or maybe some, even some helpful encouragement for students that are struggling with their faith when their parents aren't living it out or friends aren't living it out around them? When you sent that to me this morning, it's been the one question that stuck in my head all day long. And I think that period of my life between 16 and 18, and I don't say that to you. I'm fearful of saying what I'm about to say for fear that you'll think, oh, well, he survived it. And look, he's now a preacher. No, it jacked me up. If I could change anything in my life, it's how I behaved from 16 to 18. I regret it in my core because here's what I had. I was not only last name, I was a Christian in my high school. Uh, Coaches knew I went to church. I had, you know, went to youth group. I worked at a summer church camp. I had all of that stuff going on. That was the hall pass of all hall passes not to follow Jesus. And what what I don't like about what I was was as long as you all thought I was a Christian, I never really measured how God saw me. My identity, and that's a huge word now, my identity wasn't that I would follow Jesus. If the crowd went that way and Jesus went this way, I would go with him. I would stay with the crowd and tell them they ought to go with him. And it was one of those great regrets in my life as I've gotten older was that I fell in love with how you all saw me. Instead of ever really investing myself in how he saw me. Now, you know, we're old guys, and so we're going to bring up these things that make you roll your eyes. I knew I really loved my wife for in, in two moments in our existence. One's a funny story when she took the biggest french fry off my plate and ate it, and I didn't hit her. And the second one was when we were all hanging out in a big group, and everybody wanted to go see this movie, and Heather said, I don't want to go see the movie. And instantly in that moment, I said, you all can go see the movie. I'm staying with her. And I knew in that moment, it didn't matter what anybody else thought. There was something about her that I wanted to be with her. I wanted to hang out with her. I wanted to spend time with her. And I didn't care if people were with us or not. If she was there, that's where I wanted to be. That's kind of a weak explanation, but I want to tell you that if you're building your 
Christianity on who comes to Christ Church on Wednesdays or what church you go to or whether people see you going to FCA, you're going to have to step out of that and realize, will I follow Jesus to my death? Will I base everything I do on what he wants for me? It's when you fall in love with him. I don't mean the romantic, gushy stuff. I mean the real truth was, no matter, if everybody went that way and Jesus goes this way, I'm going this way. So I'm going to tell whoever wrote that because you're asking this heart-pounding question. I, I'm kind of embarrassed by what former, my friends call Christianity and the way they behave. Be a light in that place. But be bigger than that and love Jesus more than that. You can set the bar. You can light the light. You can be the salt in the world. And I think sometimes God strips us away from the people we most want to support us so that we really can learn how to love him well. And I know that that's three or four angles on the question, but this question has been in my heart all afternoon. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's a great question. Mm -hmm. You have to choose to die alone to follow Jesus. You, You will not die in a crowd. You'll never die in a crowd. And this, this is an issue that you deal with that Thomas didn't have to deal with. Hmm. Because you and each one of us, you're growing up in a culture. Um, you're growing up in a country where it's acceptable and even encouraged to be a Christian in name only. Um, so you ask people, well, are, what are you? And it's just, it's just natural for people, even if they don't have any sort of relationship with God or even go to church or whatever, well, I... I guess I'm Christian, right? You know, everybody else is, so I guess I'm Christian. So, like, you live in a culture where that's possible, where it's possible to identify yourself as a Christian and not have any idea what that means and not live it out even remotely with your life. And that makes it really difficult. It makes it really difficult because to authentically follow after Jesus with your life is going to cause you to go against the flow of a culture that is Christian but only Christian in name only. And so the, the phrase that I like is, is the phrase, attractively weird. Um, I'm, I'm just going to be very blunt with you right now. And, and some of you just aren't going to like it. Some of you aren't going to hear it. But I ho- all I can do is testify. And hopefully you'll hear it later. But the life following Jesus is a life that's attractively weird. You have to be bold enough. You have to have the audacity to live the type of life that looks different than the rest of the world. To live the type of life that to the rest of the world just looks kind of weird. That you're making decisions every day um, that sometimes the world's just not going to get. But there's something about that weirdness that ultimately becomes attractive to the world. Because the gospel, as the light, sometimes it blinds us, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. uncomfortable but eventually it's, attra- it's attractive to the world. And so... Your best, um, the calling of Jesus in your life is to be attractively weird for him. Um, and it's not always fun, but that's what following Jesus looks like. Hey, let's do this in your groups right now. Um, what does it look like for you personally to be attractively weird? Okay, what, what is an area in your life where you feel like, man, if, if, if I was really listening to God... This is the area that he would want me to be attractively weird in, okay? Second thing I want you guys to do is, as a group, come up with a few questions that you would like to discuss up here, okay? Ready? Go. All right. We're going to come back, answer some questions.
Guys, continue to text in questions even as you're at the table. Um, we want to get it, get in as many as we can. There's a lot of questions around the uh, problem of pain, evil, those types of things. So why do kind of why do bad things happen? Uh, one of my favorites is why does God's plan have to ruin our lives sometimes? So let's start with that and kind of work our way through um, the idea of. Of problem of pain or well, evil. I know. I know. Mark probably wants to chime in on this one too. But let me let me just say one thing real quick. Um, why does God's plan have to ruin my life? Well, yeah, because He's God and you're not. And you know, it's <laughs> you have to wonder, or you have to ask the question. I think it's always healthy, by the way, for us to ask this question regularly of our lives. Now, some some of you I know you're 14, 15, 16 years old. So you haven't really gotten around to asking or answering this question of your life yet. But we need to regularly ask this question of my life. What am I here for? What's my purpose? What is the ultimate purpose for my life? I know that's a big, scary question when you're like 15 and you've got more immediate concerns than that. But, But I'm being serious. It's healthy to ask that question. What is the purpose for my life? And again, you live in a culture and in a society that tells you one singular answer to that question. Do you know what the answer is? Talk back to me. Do you know what the answer to that is? What was it? Absolutely. Did you hear that answer? Your culture tells you above all things else, uh, above all else, you must be happy. You must have all of your desires fulfilled. Now, and all of a sudden, Jesus enters into the scene. And Jesus says, come to me. He who wants to save his life must give up his life. He who wants to be first must be last. Yeah, that message is not going to resonate well with a culture that says you need to be happy mm-hmm. no matter what. And so part of that tension that you're feeling is you're feeling the tension between living in a culture that's sending one message and Jesus is actually telling you, I've got something so much better for you than that, but it requires submission and sacrifice. Yeah. Well, let me add to that. I think one of the the things that culture taught me growing up is it's better to be liked and admired. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I finally realized that I wanted to be loved. Mm-hmm. And our culture will like you and it will tell you you're awesome. It'll never love you because it's using you. Yeah. It's telling you, you ladies, that you have to look a certain way to get the pleasure that the world can give you, but it's not lasting. And... And guys, it's telling you you have to be rich and you have to be wanted by women and you have to be successful and you have to be X, Y, and Z. And the truth is you'll pursue all those and some of you will actually hit your targets and when you're done, you'll weep because you're empty. So culture says be liked and admired and the Bible says be loved and the Bible gives you the solution to your need and the world can never meet the thing. It makes an empty promise. It says you can have this and when you get it, you know, it's, it's just an emptiness, and all of us, Absolutely. every adult in this room who's lived past 25 will tell you right now that there comes a point in time you wake up and you go, seriously, is this my life for the rest of it? And at that point in time, you start shooting for bigger targets, and that is I'm going to love my family well. You know, I, I went from wanting to be someone that people knew to now I just hope someone shows up at my funeral. I mean, honestly, I've lowered the bar a whole lot. I just hope when I'm gone, someone misses me for 24 hours. Because having been really loved when I've made mistakes, and so when you say, why is God ruining my life? Because he's ruining the life you've been told you should have. 
He's trying to give you the life that you were created for, that resonates in you so deeply that even when you die, it'll feel like you just walked into a door or through a door into a brand new place. C.S. Lewis was right when he painted a picture of what it is to go from one place to the other. It's just a brief moment in time, and you end up exactly where you want to be. You know, there's a lot of questions around relationships when I hear you guys talking about happiness. You know, obviously we want, and, and the fact that people, people and culture use us, and so they want us to be something that's in gain for them. And so when, you, when I hear the question of like, you know, why is friendship so hard or why, why do we have uh, family issues so much, um, it's, it's because of this root problem of selfishness. And you, you referenced it earlier with your relationship with God, with relationship with Heather, you know, and it's like marriage is hard. But, and that's why so many people get divorced is because they want happiness and don't want to endure what it means to be selfless. And what it means to be selfless is not glamorous by any means, but exactly what God is calling us to. Well, I don't know, Chad, if you would agree or disagree. I hope you'd agree. Uh, it could make me feel better. It make me feel liked and admired, Jim. <laughs> um, I think the core of the reason we don't connect with God, if I can summarize it so simply, I'll embarrass myself. It's pride or fear. Hmm. And what God does is he takes away your pride and he takes away your reason to fear. And then you find out who you really are. And so, yeah, you can fear the Lord, but be safe in the fear of the Lord. You can't fear the world and be safe at all. Mm. You can't be proud in the presence of God because he could crush you with the mere word, but he doesn't. So he humbles you in gentle ways, comparison to what he could, so that your pride and fear get set aside and you can have this relationship with him where you wouldn't sin against God because he's the only one who truly loves you in the condition you're in. And... That's, that's heavier than I want it to be. But listen, we're going to tell you because we all bit the apple. The world's a liar. Culture's a liar, and they will use you over and over. Jesus would never use you for a second. He only reshapes you. Yeah, I, I want to say something real quick because the issue of relationships, huge issue, obviously. It's on everyone's mind. Uh, trying to navigate the, the difficulties and the tensions and the confusions of relationships And one of the things that you need to grasp is this. There are two different ways to see other people. One way is to see them as an object. The other way is to see them as an image. Okay, now to see people as an object, like this stool that I'm sitting on, is an object, it's a thing. To see people as an object, you will then necessarily treat them in one of two ways. You will either use them to your own advantage or you will see them as an obstacle to overcome. So when you see people as an object, you will either use them or abuse them. Jesus gives us a better way because every single person that you've ever met is not an object, they are an image, specifically made in the image of God. Not to be used or abused, but to be treasured to be valued, to be loved, because that's how God sees each and every one of you. And what I hate to see, guys, and I'm going to preach at you for a second, but what I hate to see is students who should know better, who come to a place like this every single week, who hear a message that says God loves you, God values you, God wants the best for you, 
And then in your, in your day-to-day lives, on social media or at school or whatever, you choose to treat the other people in your lives as mere objects instead of images. Guys, it shouldn't be that way. So much of the drama and the difficulty and the frustration that we have in relationships is because of this decision right here. Will you decide to treat people as objects or images? There's a rub, you know, when it comes to what we're talking about. And I think a lot of our perception, or I know for me at times, has been, doesn't God want me to be happy? Um, Doesn't God want me to prosper in things um, in this life? Um, how, How would you direct or speak into that mindset. I'll I'll just be very short, and then I'll let Mark finish. Short answer to the question is no, God doesn't want you to be happy. I'm sorry, but happiness is too small of a target. God looks at us and says, is that it? Really, that's all you want is to be happy? That's not enough. When you want to be happy, God's up there like, you don't understand what you're asking for. I have so much more in store for you. My will for you is to not be happy. My will for you is to be holy, which is a much different thing, but it's a much fuller and complete and meaningful thing. Hmm. Um, So I guess the short surprising answer is no. Now, culture wants you to be happy, and look what that gets you. It gets you a lot of misery. This generation is the most depressed generation in history. I read that just recently. But yet we have more wealth and entertainment and everything else than we've ever had before. Why is that? It's because we're pursuing happiness and we realize we can't get it. God wants something bigger for you. I love your answer. Look what makes you happy. It's kind of embarrassing. A double cheeseburger makes me happy. A bag of red licorice makes me happy. A Cubs win makes me happy. At the end of the day, none of those things matter. None of them last. And so God doesn't, it's not that God doesn't want you to experience happiness. There's something else out there. And Chad's right. Just raise your eyes up to the target he's put in front of you. That one lasts forever. All right, let's dig in because there's, as soon as you said holy, there was like seven texts that came in. What does that mean? How do we navigate what, what holiness is in the context maybe of relationships around us? What are some, maybe some questions of discernment that we can ask ourselves when we're engaging in those relationships. Yeah, uh, this is really simple, but I always equate, because I'm a simple guy, I always equate that uh, holiness is something set apart. Um, we had china in our house. <laughs> it was really holy. My, my parents never used it uh, until certain people came over. It was set apart for a special thing. It was unique. And I think that when, if, if I heard the tail end of the question, which triggered me, uh, what are some standards you need to set? See yourself as the image of God. That God's spirit is in you. What calling does that place on your life? It's not to be holier than your neighbor. It's what are you set apart for? What's different? I have two sons. I don't want either one of my boys to settle for a life that's less than what God's called them to do to experience all of that. So holiness is being set apart for something amazing. And so don't settle for the garbage and the happiness quotient that this world wants to give you. I'd start there when you think about what that term might mean. Yeah, set apart's a good way of, of, uh, of thinking about it. Um, I, I, like to, I like to think of it this way, too, that 
to be holy in our lives means that we are growing into the image and the likeness of Jesus. So every day in my life, I'm looking more and more like Jesus. So the things that I say, the, the thoughts that I have, the way that I treat other people, um, these things are looking more like Jesus every day. That's what it means to grow in holiness. And you realize, to, just to circle back around to something that we said earlier, as you're growing in holiness, you're also growing in this attractively weird quality too because when you're looking more like Jesus every day, you're going to start to look a little bit different than the world. Um, and people will eventually start to notice that. Um, so to be holy, just to make it very, very simple is that you're growing into the likeness of Jesus. You're looking more like Jesus in the things you say and do and the way you treat others. As you guys, we're going to wrap up with this last question. As you guys were preparing for tonight, and uh, we've been talking about this for quite a while, um, what, is, what has God placed on your heart, just a prayer for students, for this generation, when it comes to doubt and struggling and wrestling with faith? Is there anything that the Holy Spirit just kind of been speaking with to you um, that you would like to encourage our students tonight? Yeah, I'd like to tell you that your God is not a stop it God. Hmm. He's not a God who's looking down on you going, quit it, stop it, how dare you? He's a God that's offering you something so much better. He's saying you don't have to, you don't need to, and he can even create, if you trust him, an I don't want to inside of you. We're never going to be perfect. But right now, we live in this, i got to have it right now. And if I don't take it right now, I may never get it. Most of our sins, the reason we chose to rebel against God is we thought, I may never get this opportunity again. Instead of looking at God as a don't-have-fun God, I want to just encourage you to understand what you're hearing over and over and over. He's saying to you, you don't need that. You don't want that. And that won't satisfy you. But he's saying, my love will satisfy you forever. Yeah. You know, when I think of Thomas, um, you know, I think think a lot of us can can identify with Thomas. I I think we could identify with each one of the disciples in a different way. But I feel like I can identify maybe most closely with Thomas. But um, one of the things that I find myself saying on a regular basis to not just to students, but to anybody who's struggling with questions and the mystery of God um, is simply this. Uh, I believe that my God is a God of truth. Um, I believe that God is the truth. And if you are genuinely pursuing truth with your life, um, then you are pursuing God. And God is honored by your questions. God is honored by your struggle. God is not honored by us when we just throw our hands up and give up. God is not honored when we're just sort of apathetically going with the flow instead of swimming against the current. Dead things go with the current. Live things swim against the current. God's not honored when we stop seeking him. So I guess my encouragement to you would simply be this. Continue to seek God, even when it's hard, even when there are confusions. And it pains me to know that we've only skimmed the surface of the questions that have been asked. There's a whole host of other issues that I know you guys are struggling with. I just know it. Continue to pursue that truth because God is honored in that pursuit. Will you help me show your appreciation to these guys?
I've said it a lot on this stage um, that the struggle is absolutely real. And the struggle is real in my life. And you look around at adults that are, are here, they can, they can testify to the struggle that's in their lives. Um, we're going to sing a song. And, and this is going to be a prayer for us, kind of an anthem of sorts. Um, but in the bridge, it talks about, I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. My flesh will fail, but my God never will. And that is a truth that we can continue to proclaim every day. That my flesh, my desires are going to continue to distract me. I'll tell you guys, this happens to me day in and day out. But I have the spirit that lives within me that is strong, that is mighty, is able to do far more than I can ever think or imagine. I'm weak. We are weak. But we have a God that is strong. So let's stand and sing this anthem as our prayer. Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.